Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Good morning, my name is Josh Bertram. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Grace Crossing Church. It's great to have you here with us today. Part of my responsibilities that I have is working with the students and with the kids. And I love being able to work with the kids. It's a lot of fun. I uh, act goofy, put on different costumes, and do a bunch of crazy stuff. And it's a lot of fun to do that. But I love working with kids because they're really enthusiastic. They're energetic. You know, I have a son who's almost three, and he has endless, an emphasis on endless energy. Uh, and he's a great kid, though. And I love um, you know, interacting with that. One of the things, though, I love about kids is that they are very honest, right? They say what they, uh, they say what's on their minds. They have, you know, they, they speak with um, candor, you know, they just say what's going on. You know, I just remember the show, uh, Kids Say the Darndest Things, thumbs up if you remember that show, right? That, the whole premise behind that show is that you get kids in front of an audience or the camera, they're going to say some crazy stuff that people are going to laugh about. And because we know that, there's the, the, the flow of information from their mind just goes out through their mouth. And that's just part of what it's like to be a kid. And, you know, with Malachi, he says some pretty funny stuff. Right now, everything is dangerous. So the uh, bath is dangerous. Breakfast is dangerous. Uh, lunch is dangerous. Napping is definitely dangerous. It's all very dangerous. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to get out of those things that he wants to do. And you know, if you have kids, and uh, those of us here who've had children, um, we know that especially in your relationship with, with your spouse, uh, you're asking the question, you know, whose fault is that aspect of my kid? You know, and it's like, that's your, pro-. you know, you did that. You brought that in. And I was like, oh, sorry. Well, for me, uh, definitely the Malachi's propensity to say uh, silly things, I think he gets from me. Um, when I was about five years old, maybe six, my dad and I would play a game, and it was called Fat Daddy. Now, this game was very, very simple, and the premise uh, goes as follows. Um, I would sit on my dad's lap and uh, look at his belly, and then uh, he would say, you ready? And then I'd laugh and slap him right in the middle of the belly as hard as I could and say, Fat Daddy! All right, so it's a really fun game. Go ahead and play it. Um, not too complicated. Anyone can learn it. Just don't do it with adults, all right? Stick to your kids, too. Um, but it was a lot of fun, all right? Um, but one of the problems is dad never explained to me uh, the appropriate contexts for fat daddy. Like what situations and environments should fat daddy be played out in? I never got that explanation or that memo. And so uh, one day we were going to dinner. And I don't remember where it was. It's irrelevant. And we were, I had to go to the bathroom. So of course I grabbed my dad and he took me over to the bathroom. And as we were leaving, um, there was a very large man. Basically took up the entire doorway. Now, probably two times the size of my dad uh, there. And he was rotund. Okay, so... What I did in my five-year-old mind, I said, man, this would be a great opportunity to practice my fat daddy skills. <laughs> so I come up to this man, total stranger, and I, with all the force and aim I can muster as a five-year-old kid, I slap him square in the middle of the stomach and say, look, daddy, it's a fat man. Bam. Roll, everything's going on. Okay, so 
I was also never taught, what do you do after you slap a stranger in the stomach and call him fat? Well, in my mind, as I was processing this in my five-year-old mind, I thought, hey, I know, I'm going to run. Bam! I ran back to mommy, left daddy with the fat man to have a conversation. It's funny because, you know, kids, they just say what's on their mind. You know, they say things. Um, They haven't built filters yet, you know. And filters are a good thing. You know, sometimes we build those walls and those filters that we need because I shouldn't be playing fat daddy anymore, all right? And if you see me doing that, please stop me, all right, and call my wife. Something's wrong. So, you know, I, I shouldn't do that. There's a filter there. And those filters are good things. We learn what's appropriate in different contexts and situations that we face in life. But one of the things, though, that happens with those filters and those walls is they are a double-edged sword. And as we grow older, uh, we tend to not just uh, um, act more appropriately in situations, but we tend to begin, uh, start to conceal things. Um, we start to build walls and um, uh, build filters where we begin to withhold information from people. Um, and it's not always a bad thing, um, but there are many, many contexts when there is something that someone should know about us or about something we've done or said, and we, uh, we have built a wall, an impenetrable wall, where we won't reveal that information. Um, we build a wall and a filter where it causes us to deceive, to lie, to cover things up, to get around the truth. You know, the Bible talks about truth a lot. The ninth of ten commandments that God gives us, Exodus 20, number nine says, don't lie. Don't bear false witness. Don't do that. You know, God really uh, emphasizes truth all over the place. And so does Jesus. And when Jesus came, he faces this issue of deception head on. Head on. See, something happens between the time that we're two and the time that we're 12 and 20 and 40. Something happens. Something happens inside. And what happens is we stop actually speaking the truth. We begin to hide ourselves. And we hide ourselves for a lot of reasons. But we hide ourselves nonetheless. And as we hide ourselves, we deceive others. And we can even deceive ourselves. And so, Jesus addresses this. And we're going to address it today. We've been in a series called Overwhelmed. And the basic idea behind this series is that when Jesus spoke, people reacted. And they reacted because he had power and he had authority. And his teaching was radical. But it struck deep to their hearts. So they're overwhelmed by his teaching, amazed and overwhelmed by it. When we go through the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 through 7, the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to find ourselves in chapter 5 today. 
And Jesus is going to address this issue. And you know, it's not easy to hear what he says sometimes. But it's necessary. And when Jesus comes at this issue, he does two things. The first thing he does is he describes the origins of deception. And he places the origins of deception in two different areas. The first is in the human heart and its sinfulness. The second area that deception comes from is more evil and even more insidious. It comes from Satan. And it comes from the influence and power of Satan in the lives of people. And it comes from the demonic forces and evil forces that Satan controls. And Jesus gives us these two areas of the origin. And then he tells us that we don't have to be conquered. We don't have to be slave to deception. We don't have to be ruled by it. We can overcome it. And he gives us very practical ways to overcome deception that is inherent and is natural to all of us. We all, all deal with it. And so when we come to this section of scripture, and it's found in Matthew chapter 5, the first thing Jesus does is he summarizes the teaching of the Old Testament on something called oaths or vows. Now, an oath or a vow was a solemn promise. And people would make an oath or a vow and they'd make it in the name of the Lord because that was the highest authority. And what happened is when they say this, they'd actually say, I'm going to either do this thing I'm saying or this thing I'm saying is true. And if that is not correct, then God will bring discipline and curse and consequences into my life. We do the same thing all the time. Every time we sign a signature, we are making a promise. We're making a promise that what is in that document we are either agreeing to or we think is true. Or that this is what happened. Every time we sign a check that we have gone and paid with a credit card, we're actually signing. If you look at the bottom of that, it says that you, uh, you agree to pay the amount that you have just put onto this credit card. You know, we always promise things. Say, I, I promise I'll be there on time. Yeah, right. <laughs> I promise that it won't hurt. Sometimes it gets more serious. Um, I promise to serve and protect my country. I promise to be committed to you and you alone for all the days of my life till death do us part. I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. You see, God provides a way and Jesus provides a summary of it. He does it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Here's what he says. He says, again, you've heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. And so when you go and look in the Old Testament, you'd see different scriptures. Like Leviticus 19, 12. It says, don't take an oath or give false witness in my name. That will be treating it, my name, as if it were not holy. I am the Lord your God. There's another uh, version of this scripture that I really like because it hits home a little more. Leviticus 19.12 and the um, contemporary English version, do not misuse my name 
by making promises you don't intend to keep. I am the Lord, your God. Hits a little closer to home when it's said that way. And so, you know, the question that we have to ask ourselves when we come to any of this is why is it even there in the first place? I mean, why did God have to bring this law and speak it to Moses so he would write it down? And when we actually start thinking about it, uh, the question goes back to our hearts. The answer to that question goes back to our hearts. See, um, you wouldn't make a law about murder if no one ever murdered. And you wouldn't make a law about stealing if no one ever stole. And you wouldn't make a law about lying if no one ever lied. See, the very fact that these things are in there and that the laws and oaths and promises are in every culture that has ever existed, the reason, the very fact that they're there is an indictment, is an accusation against the human heart. And we get this, don't we? We get this. I mean, you don't have trust issues because everyone always told you the truth all the time and was honest with you. And you don't doubt that what that other person said because you've only ever been told the truth at every era of your life. You don't doubt what that person says because you have said the truth every time. No, we've been hurt and we've been lied to and we've been deceived and we have hurt and lied to and deceived other people. And because of that, we understand human nature is one that we deceive each other in ourselves. It is a propensity, it is a, it is a, a, a natural part of the human heart. And I, I love the way uh, James Madison uh, says, he's one of the uh, uh, writers of the Federalist Papers, and he says it this way, what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. I, I would kind of change this a little bit and say if men were angels and if men and women were angels, uh, then we wouldn't need to have promises. If men and women were angels, signatures would be irrelevant. If we were all uh, honest all the time, then we would not actually have to have contracts that make promises, swearing oaths, making vows. All of that would be unnecessary. But men and women aren't angels. And when Jesus summarizes the teaching of the Old Testament on vows, he is actually making an indictment against the human heart that we deceive and that we are deceived and we do it by nature. It's in our heart. It's in our heart to do it. He doesn't just trace it to the human heart though. He actually traces the power of Deception in our life to the influence of Satan and to the influence of the evil forces, spiritual forces that Satan controls and oversees. Matthew 5.37 
It's at the end of our passage, and here's what he says. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And I need to take a moment, and I need to address an issue because I think we all feel it. Whenever we talk about Satan, or we talk about demons, we talk about these evil demonic forces, things like that, it can be a little bit uncomfortable. Because in our thought process and in our worldview as Western Americans, uh, we think that if something can't be proved in a laboratory... If it can't can't be confirmed through scientific method, it is not true, and the quality of its truth is less than other areas. The problem is everything can't be proved in a laboratory, and the scientific method cannot tell us everything we need to know about morality, about our souls, about our minds. It can't tell us uh, whether or not God exists, and it can't tell us whether or not evil exists exists. And the reality is evil and good are moral categories. And what that means is that if there's a moral category, a person has to make a choice that is either good or evil. Someone who could choose otherwise, someone who has morality in their heart, who has a choice and has a conscience, those are the people who make moral choices. We will never condemn and convict a lion for murder because it ate prey. Because lions aren't people. But we will convict a person for murdering because they made a moral choice. And before God, they are held accountable to that moral choice. And if there is a moral good that we have, who is God, a person who is all good and all loving and who loves us, and if there is a moral good, the question comes, where did evil come from? Well, God created us in his image. And so the evil was there in potential, but it wasn't actually there because we hadn't chosen to disobey God. No, it came from something external. And his name is Satan, and he came to Adam and Eve, our first parents, in the form of a serpent. And he deceived them. He questioned God's love, and he questioned God's law. He questioned what God wanted for them, and we fall prey to the same reasoning today. And what Satan does is he's very powerful. Well, one of the things that he's very powerful in is deceiving and influencing us to lie. Influencing us to conceal and hide ourselves and hide what's going on inside. And so when we see that you simply say yes or no, anything beyond this comes from the evil one, we understand when this happens, when someone asks us a question that we need to give an answer to and we begin to kind of try to scoot around the truth or we redefine words or we kind of try to avoid saying really what happened or we just withhold information that would be really relevant in that situation. And anytime we begin to expand on our words and try to make all these excuses, we open up a door for Satan to influence our weakness, which is our desire to hide ourselves from others. And he's good at it. And he's very powerful And so, the origin of deception. There's weakness in your heart and in my heart. We want to hide ourselves. We, we, we don't like the consequences of sin and the consequences of doing the wrong thing. We don't want to tell people about what we've said and done and looked at and everything. And so we want to conceal that. But what, and, and Satan will capitalize and his, the evil forces will capitalize 
on that weakness and influence us strongly to choose to lie. And we make that choice all the time. And it is a choice. And so we have Jesus giving us the origins. And what do we do about it? Well, I think Jesus gives us extremely practical ways to overcome the power of deception in our life. And I think if we want to overcome the power of deception in our life, we need to say what we mean and we need to mean what we say. Because when we start looking back on the different areas of life when we tried to conceal things, so often we don't mean what we say and we don't say what we actually mean. So what does Jesus do? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, 34, he says this, I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Now, when you look at this and you've looked just before, you see that Jesus summarizes the Old Testament teaching on it. And then it looks as if he's actually telling us to do something that we've been clearly instructed to do in the Old Testament. And, you know, that can cause some issues. Because if God was the author of the Old Testament, Jesus is God, then how could they contradict? And I think the answer falls in understanding how we interpret law, how we interpret something. And I'm going to give uh, a little bit technical, so stay with me, but I think this is extremely important because Jesus so often does this and people will come at it and try to attack the truth of scripture by saying, oh, Jesus just contradicts himself or he's contradicting God or how could a God of the Old Testament and New Testament be the same? Well, I think one of the answers is found in how anybody interprets law. Judges do it all the time. I have a graphic for you to check out there. Um, the first thing that any judge does, or and lawyers, or any people looking at the law, especially laws that are old, is they look at the words. The words, right, the literal meanings of the words, and they try to figure it out. When you look at the words of Leviticus, they say, look, don't take an oath. Don't swear falsely and say you're going to do something that God and God's name that you're not going to do. Those are the little words and the meanings. I mean, Jesus is speaking 1,400 years after this law was originally written. Think about the debate, the ink that's been spilled over trying to understand the Constitution, which is 250 years old. See, things change, meanings change, words, the meanings of words change. They mean something then that they don't mean now. Culture changes. All these things happen. So when you look at the words, those always don't give you really what you need. So you have to take another step and look at the intentions. And the intentions of the author of God and Moses who wrote that in Leviticus and wrote that part of the law was they wanted to ensure that people had a tool to make sure that when they dealt with other people that they could that the truth would be told. Because we need truth to be told. Maybe you guys don't trust your mechanic, but if you really didn't trust your mechanic at all, then you would never take your car to the mechanic and you thought the mechanic would just steal things from you and, and wouldn't do anything, wouldn't fix the problem, give you back the car and charge you exorbitant amounts and you couldn't trust anything that they said. Literally, society couldn't work at all. And it moves on to the purpose of what a law does. And when God gave that purpose in the law, what he gave was a way for his society, his people to operate with each other and to be able to have a coherent nation, a nation that was built on truth, 
And when you take one step back, which people do all the time when they're looking at a law, they've seen the intention, the purpose, but now they look, what is the moral principle behind this? And the moral principle is really the driving force. God is a God of truth. And he expects truth in the dealings of his people with one another. And because of the sinfulness of human hearts, because there's deception there, God gave a tool to make sure in certain areas that we could ensure that truth is being told. But his heart, his heart is that truth would always be told. See, when Jesus says don't swear and you look at those things, he's not contradicting what God already said. If he was contradicting what God already said, he would have been saying, don't, don't tell the truth, tell a lie. You don't need to speak the truth. No, Jesus is going to intention, purpose, and principle, and he is driving the point home that a disciple of Jesus, they don't need to have oaths, promises, and they don't even need to have signatures. Why? Because their word is as good as anything, because a disciple of Jesus won't lie. And because it's not that we can't engage in those things, we have to do that to be able to live in our culture. No, Jesus is saying that those things aren't wrong, making vows and promises and oaths, but they are unnecessary for a disciple of Jesus. Because a disciple of Jesus is going to tell the truth anyway. And so when Jesus says, don't swear at all, what he is saying is make a commitment to mean what you say. Make a commitment to not try to get around the truth because people are always trying to get around the truth. They say, okay, I can't swear in the name of the Lord, but maybe I can do it in the name of Jerusalem or maybe in the name of heaven or maybe I can just swear by myself. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, verse 34 through 36, he says, don't swear an oath at all. It's 534 through 36. Don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. And do not even swear by your head, because you can't even make one hair white or black. People are trying to get out of what God had actually told them. And we look at that and we think, oh, well, we don't do that today, really? Maybe it's the teenager who tells their mom and dad, oh, yeah, the project's going fine when they want to go out that weekend and hang out with friends. And what they mean by fine is not what their parents mean by fine. What they mean by fine is I haven't really even started, but I'm planning to. And what their parents mean is, are you actually able to go out? Do you have time? Or maybe it's the employee who does the same thing on a project. Oh, that project is coming along. And actually deceives the boss because they haven't even started working at it or they've been wasting time or doing things that aren't right. Or maybe it's the wife when the husband asks, hey, how are things going? You seem a little stressed. Oh yeah, I'm just really busy at work. Things are really bad right now. But really what's happening is that they are starting to engage the ideas of an affair, an adulterous relationship with another man and they've already started to talk to them. And so they're stressed because of the guilt, but they're going to put it on something else. We use our words to get around, to hide, to conceal the truth all the time. And Jesus says, mean what you say. And so that means we got to ask ourselves some questions. We got to ask ourselves, what information am I not saying right now that I should be? Is there anything I'm withholding in this conversation or in this relationship? 
that they need to know about? Am I really trying to spare their feelings or is it more about protecting myself and hiding my sin? Is it really that I just want to have peace in my home or is it more about I'm ashamed and I don't want anyone to know because if they know, they'll leave me and they will hate me? And so we begin to conceal the reality with our words and we do this all the time. We need to mean what we say. And we also need to say what we mean. That is the beauty of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 37. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Jesus isn't saying be truthful only in yes or no questions. What Jesus is saying that is in the, in the context and the environments and situations that you face in life, you should have a commitment, a stone-cold, rock-hard commitment to the truth and that you are going to give all the information to the best of your ability to make sure that truth is given in this situation and in this conversation because you trust God. And it means you're humble. You don't know everything. You don't understand everything that's going on. You're just trying to give it to the best of your ability. And as you do that, you begin to trust that God will be able to work out his plan in your life through you doing what he's asked you to do, which is tell the truth. Now, it needs to be to the right people at the right times. Spilling all the beans and taking out the skeletons in your closet and giving it to the mailman is not a good idea. And I don't suggest that. But talking to your wife, talking to your husband, talking to a pastor, a mentor, a friend, Bringing someone in so they can know you and see you so you can say what you really mean. Answering honestly when people give you questions. Avoiding, concealing. Yeah. It's not easy. I mean, this is something I've struggled with my entire life. I mean, I've struggled with being honest about what's going on inside. And I've struggled with saying things I've done that I don't like. And when I was a kid, I was exposed to things that kids shouldn't be exposed to. Pornographic images, being with people and in places that six-year-old, seven-year-old shouldn't be at. And my parents didn't know I lied to them about it. They wouldn't have let me go. I struggle with it. And I brought that struggle into my marriage. And when I got married, I had bad expectations. I had a horrible self-image. I had anger problems, and a lot of them was because I was so angry at myself. I had things going on inside and Ashley was like, what's going on? I don't even understand this because I wouldn't tell her. And we had to have some really tough conversations. <laughs> like it wasn't fun. But I talked to her. I began to tell her things about things I'd done and said and things that happened to me, things I had been exposed to. 
And God softened her heart and we grew closer because of it. And there was freedom in it. Because it's not just about saying the truth, it's about receiving it too. Half the reason people don't want to talk to us is because they're afraid of how we're going to react. And we need God's grace to help us. And Ashley had things going on too, and we talked through those, and we knew each other as a result of it. We understood each other. Because, you know, it's a good question to ask. Um, why should we tell the truth? That's a really important question. You know, I think an even more important question is why do we lie in the first place? And I think the reason that we lie is that we're afraid. We're afraid that if that person knows who we are, we're going to lose our job, lose our marriage, lose our friendship. We're going to lose something that we have, that we want to hold on to it. And we don't want to be known. And it's tough. It's tough to tell the truth. But what's beautiful is that the cross gives us an answer to this. And the cross gives us two answers. It tells us two things about the truth about ourselves. The first thing is that we're broken. The first thing is that we are deceptive, that our hearts are rendered apart and that we hide ourselves. The first thing is that we begin to conceal and hide ourselves from God all the time and we run from him and it was so bad that the son of God had to die. That's how bad it was. We're not that good. Our hearts are dark and broken. But the cross tells us something else too. The cross tells us that though our hearts are broken and though we deceive and though we do everything to try to resist God, it tells us that God ignored that and he pursued us anyway. It tells us that even though we don't deserve acceptance, God accepts us. And it tells us that even though we don't deserve telling, being told that we're worth it, God thought we were. And the cross tells us that God would do anything and everything to show you love. And see, if I talk to you guys and I tell you everything that's going on, you can condemn me and judge me and gossip about it and go around and tell everything, oh, look what Josh did and all this stuff. And that, that brings fear, right? We don't want that. But you can do all that stuff but if God, who already knows everything about me, he knows every fantasy, he knows every sin, he knows every word, he knows every thought, he knows every deed and action, the deepest depths of darkness in our heart, he knows it and he's seen it all and even despite knowing all that, he still chose to die for us. And see, if God, who has all control, has all authority, who is all powerful, can love us that much and he accepts us, then what does it matter if he doesn't, and they don't, and she doesn't. See, the love of God sets us free. And what does it set us free to do? It sets us free to trust God. Because when we begin to be honest, trust begins to grow. You haven't done anything God doesn't know about, and he loves you anyway. 
And if he loves you and he accepts you, then it doesn't matter if no one else does. Because he's got control of your life anyway. Your boss doesn't have control of your life. God does. And he already accepts you. If we want to break the power of deception in our heart, we got to understand its origins. It's in our weakness. We want to hide ourselves. It's in the influence, powerful influence of Satan. But we don't have to be conquered by that. Through the power of the Spirit, we can be honest. We can be truthful in everything we say and do. We're going to listen to a song, and I want you to use the words as a prayer. It's going to be up on the screen. But as we're listening to this, I want you to think of three questions I want you to ask. Yourself. Who do I need to be honest with? Who do I need to tell something to that I haven't? The second thing is, what do I need to be honest about? And the third thing is, what am I going to do about it? What step am I going to take? Am I going to make the text, send the Facebook message? Am I going to set up coffee? Am I going to have a conversation on the ride home? What am I going to do? Who do I need to talk to? What do I need to say? And what am I going to do? Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.